Lord, in a moment as we stand for the reading of your word, I ask that you would, Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth and put everything into context. Give us insight into remembering that we would memorialize, remember those that have given us this liberty, this freedom. I pray, God, through this passage that we'd have a greater insight into our calling upon our lives. And I pray that you would touch every heart in a way in which you so gently do, and that you'd equip us to honor you, to honor this nation, this gift that you've given us. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll pick up at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded... And a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down. Let's read that together. These who have turned the world upside down. Perfect. They've come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Everyone say Caesar. Caesar. Saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so that's our passage. Lord, please bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sit down, relax. You know, Memorial Day is an interesting concept. It used to be called Decoration Day. It really took root in 1886 or 1868. And in 1868, what had occurred, especially prior to that, is a number of Confederate widows and Union widows. In, in the springtime, when the flowers were in full bloom, would go and gather flowers, and they called it Decoration Day, and they would adorn the tombstones with flowers, and they would host a picnic in remembrance of the loved one that was lost, their husband, their father, their brother, their son, their friend, and they would have a picnic at the gravesite. And they continued to do this in the spring to remember those who had died, those who had fought for liberty and had, had perished. And by, by 1868... Over 300,000 Union soldiers had to be interned and taken from battlefield when their bodies were identified and they were taken to their hometown where they were then buried. And, and uh, as over 300,000 had been interred by 1868, they began to have a regular practice of Decoration Day where they would go out to the grave sites and they would put this in the, the last Monday of, of May when the flowers were in full, full bloom. And it was fascinating that uh, Flanders Field was a poem that was written and a woman who had read it was so touched by it that she created these poppies and when she went to go contend for the remembrance of those who had died in World War I, it became a symbol of Memorial Day, these poppies in Flanders Field. It's a profound poem. And, and it wasn't until World War II that, that uh, Decoration Day became known as Memorial Day. And as uh, wives, mothers, fathers brothers, sisters would come out 
at the tombstone of a loved one that had been lost in World War II, they set up a, a commemorative day and they called it Memorial Day. And so this is the tradition in America that we remember those who died while in service to their country. And, and oftentimes, unlike Veterans Day, uh, Veterans Day we recognize the veterans who are remaining, but on Memorial Day we recognize those who died in the service of their nation. This is a, a time where I want to stop and, and take a note. I've been profoundly influenced in my life by a number of military personnel. My swim coach, Michael Francis Troy, Olympic gold medal winner in the 1960 Olympics, Navy SEAL, two tours of Vietnam, when he was slated to go on his third tour uh, after he'd seen such horror in the first two tours, they had slated him to be a trainer for the SEAL teams. And he was, even to this day, considered one of uh, the toughest trainers because he had been through two tours of Vietnam and he didn't want to lose any of these men. And so he was ruthless with them and they were the best trained. Some of his stories are, are grueling. And I've, I've read accounts of, of Coach Troy's accomplishments and the things that he did. And he rose to the rank of a lieutenant commander, a Navy SEAL, and also a world record holder and a gold medal winner. This was a man that trained me and taught me hard work, and I was deeply touched by his life. My father, three tours of Vietnam, uh, retired as a Navy captain, died last year with Alzheimer's. My dad had seen combat, and he had lived through the horrors of it. My godfather, Rear Admiral Robert Early, uh, up until 2014, was the highest-ranking survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was a lieutenant on the USS Kassin on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese sank his ship, the USS Kassin, and he was given, I think, the Silver Star for putting out the fire. And um, he recounted that to me during the election when I ran for uh, the state assembly. I was in the primary campaign for the state assembly, and he was going to turn... 100 years old, and I was going to miss his 100th birthday because of the campaign. And at the point where I realized I was out of money, and um, my own party in a primary campaign was attacking me and spending countless money to destroy everything I held dear, attacking the school, the church, me, my family, my own party. I'd been a Republican longer than I'd been a Christian, longer than I'd been a husband, a father. And, and here my own party was just obliterating me in a primary campaign, in a jungle primary, nevertheless. And, um, and I was tired of going out to the mailbox and I was out of money. I couldn't respond to the attacks and it was awful. And I thought, I'm going to take a break and just get away from the campaign. So I went down to Coronado to go visit my then 99 year old godfather, um, because my mother had passed away in 2010. My dad was in a home with Alzheimer's. So for all intents and purposes, he was the patriarch of our family. My godfather was dear friends with my wife's uh, grandfather both my wife's grandfather and my godfather were classmates, uh, the class of 37 from the United States Naval Academy. They were dear friends, uh, as were their wives. My godmother and Michelle's grandmother were dear friends. Uh, my, my wife's grandfather uh, received the Navy Cross, second only to the Medal of Honor, when he sunk the Japanese command ship on the attack of Pearl Harbor, the Nagato. And he was in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, highly decorated Navy Cross, a substantial accomplishment. And uh, he ended up dying in 1967 in a fire at Glenview um, Naval Base and died while serving this nation. Thus, he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, as is Michelle's grandmother. Uh, Michelle was in the womb of her mother when her grandfather died in 1967. And I was looking at some of the 
the recount the recounting historical information regarding Admiral Fowler, and he died at the age of fifty three which i 'll be this year and I thought to myself, as my daughter Molly is pregnant with what will be our second grandchild, a granddaughter, and I was telling Michelle that our granddaughter would be the same age you would have been in the womb. Uh, when your grandfather passed, and it brought all things kind of into perspective. My my godfather, when I went to visit him um, prior to the election, I came into his house, and I was so distraught and so disoriented and, and just upset. And with his booming voice, and at 99 years of age, he was still doing 100 sit-ups a day. And he, and he still drove. Not well, but he drove. <laughs> Pastor Marty drives a little bit better than <laughs> Uncle Bob did. And uh, I came in, I sat down in his home that I had known the entirety of my life, and he said, how's it going? And I said, well, Uncle Bob, it's awful. I'm getting carpet bombed by my own party. I'm out of money. Uh, California's going to hell in a handbag. I feel like I've led these folks on a rosy road to nowhere. I just don't think there's any hope. And in the middle of my whining, he puts his hand up and he says, stop it! And it paralyzed me. I got spanked by a 99-year-old man. Stop it. And he says, listen to me. You don't know tough. I was 16 years old in the Great Depression. We didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. And had it not been an appointment to the Naval Academy, I would have never received a college degree. And I was in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And that day they sank half our Pacific fleet. They sank my ship. The harbor was on fire and I pulled my shipmates out of the water and they were dead. The next day we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations and we brought them both to their knees. We lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. We refitted it. And when we brought those nations to their knees, we set up representative forms of government in both of them. And when we came back to the United States, we cut federal spending by 50%, started the greatest industrial revolution in the history of our nation. Now quit whining and go finish what you started. I put it into perspective. And what did that? It was a history lesson. I remembered. Memorial, remember. Remember. Put it all into perspective for me. You see, the nation has a common Alzheimer's. We've forgotten from whence we've come and we have no idea where we're going. And if we don't stop and remember, we're in great jeopardy of losing this great gift of liberty and freedom. And it took me getting spanked by a 99-year-old man to realize that I don't know what tough is. And I'm tired of the incessant whining, as my godfather was. Whining without action. Looking at your face in a mirror, walking away and forgetting what you look like and who you are. You're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That no weapon fashioned against you will stand and you've forgotten. You look in the mirror and you walk away and you forget who you are. And the opposite of remember is to forget. And the the, the, the consensus of Alzheimer's across the nation that we've forgotten this gift that has been given to us. We don't know our history. We don't remember. And I wanted to pause, take a minute to remember. You see, you sit in a church with Bibles open and freedom Freedom given to you by men and women who have paid so costly a sacrifice upon that altar of freedom. And that gift was their life so that you could have this opportunity to rightly divide the word of truth 
because words change the world. In the book of Acts, which we just read, as Paul goes into Thessalonica, the entire world is turned upside down because a handful of people committed to the gospel begin to preach the word, and the word transforms the community. And it begins to reach into the deepest sectors of that community, into the government hierarchy, to the point where Caesar and the governors are of great concern because there is one who is contending for the authority of Caesar, that they say there's another king, King Jesus. And I don't speak of a theocracy. I speak of an individual commitment to Christ that transforms culture. And this is handful of folks gather together in Thessalonica and stand fast on liberty, as Paul would write later in the book of Galatians, as he would be imprisoned for activities similar to this, He would write in the book of Galatians, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And when he penned those words, he was in prison, declaring liberty while he was in prison himself. And as you consider these statements of the Apostle Paul transforming the city of Thessalonica and watching as that entire city was turned upside down, Here's the exact words from Galatians 5. It says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You see, when Stephen gave his first sermon in the book of Acts, he gave an entire history of Israel to remember. To remember. Remember what? That they were once in bondage and slavery to an oppressive king. They were set free and entered into the promised land of Canaan. And if they would keep their commitment to the Lord, he would bless them as a nation. And if they rejected the Lord, they would be troubled. And Paul is saying, if you forget this liberty for which Christ has called you to, you will once again find yourself in bondage. It's in the nature of man to get another man to work for him so that he himself would not have to work. It's in the nature of man to be selfish. It's in the nature of man to be ambitious and seek his own as opposed to come and to serve because to serve another individual is contrary to our human nature and our selfish sin nature. To find ourselves dying for a greater cause, to find ourselves serving for a greater cause is only something that can be inspired by words that have profound meaning. And the Bible says that God's word is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so as you gather in this room, I can show you by evidence the power of, the, of simply the spoken word that, that transforms lives. How many of you have been delivered by drug addiction or had your marriages healed or watched as your life has been transformed simply by the preaching of the word of God? Raise your hand and let everyone see. Keep them up. Look around. That's the power of the word of God. So powerful that a city would be turned into tumult, that a civic or civil government would be challenged. And from this this little enclave that was now entering in the Western Hemisphere, the word would take root. The church would hold the sword and realize that God never called them to hold the sword. And they would start to look at this idea in the scriptures of suppressing the people. They would justify slavery through the scriptures. They would justify divine right of kings by the scriptures. They would misappropriate the scriptures for the sake of self-service. And when they started to see the oppressive nature of the church and what it had done with the inquisitions and the like, a handful of people realizing the indulgences being sold by the church and the corruption of the church itself went back to the scriptures in their personal relationship with the Lord and the Protestant Reformation occurred. The Protestant Reformation was inspired by the Geneva Bible, 
which was the Bible of the Reformation. And not unlike any other Bible, it had the text itself, but it had marginal commentary on the right side of the scriptures that dealt with civil government. So these reformers started to look at everything in life and say, how does God's effect in the world transform every aspect of culture? And they began to apply these commentaries and started to look at government from the perspective of the scriptures. And so when the pilgrims seeking freedom the ability to worship their God as they desired instead of to be oppressed by Caesar or a king by divine right, they started to long for that freedom, realizing they'd been created in the image of God. And they started to study and scour the scriptures to find what government looks like. And so when they came here in 1621, they gave the Mayflower Compact, which was the first article of government given to this nation. And it was for the purpose of promoting the gospel. And they unified and established a civil government. And at at first, they studied the book of Acts and thought, as the scripture says, that they laid their, 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 their goods at the feet of the apostles and the apostles gave to those who had need. And so they applied early on an early type of socialism and started to realize this isn't working. Because as they would, they would put all of their, their resources into a common pile and then give them equally to others, they started to realize that the lazy thought this to be a great opportunity. And those who work started to realize, why work? Why not just do what they do? And they started to see the breakdown in civil society. So they began to scour the scriptures more. And they came across in the book of Exodus, Exodus 18.21, where the scripture declares in Exodus 18.21, you shall select from all the people, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And so they looked at local county, state, and federal government based on Exodus 18.21. They looked and they also realized the ambition of man is something that's innate to his nature. So we want ambition to be there because ambition gives drive, but we want to keep that ambition in check. And so they established, knowing the sinful nature of man, three branches of government that each branch could check the other. So you came up with the executive, legislative, and judicial branch. And that wasn't by fiat. That was actually designed out of Isaiah 33, 22, that says, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. Judge, that would be the judicial. Lawgiver would be the legislative branch and king would be the executive branch of government. And they established it based on these scriptures. They started to look at it. They realized the only way that we can have a government that's a constitutional republic where individuals have freedom is that that individual has to be accountable to God because only a moral people can, can sustain a republic. And so the very first public school act that they did was called the Old Satan Deluder Act, where they did a public school education, realizing that the children had to be literate, but not just literate, they had to be biblically literate so they could understand that faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And as they start to uh, pour into these children, they started to see liberty and freedom established across the land. The very first textbook that they gave to the students in America was what was called the New England Primer. It was about that high, about that wide, about that thick. And it was for primary and and elementary and grammar school students. At the back of of the New England primer is over 170 questions, all pertaining to biblical issues. The alphabet was taught um, by saying A is for Adam, C is for Christ. And as they gave them a complete literate biblical education and started to teach them structure, sentence structure, language understanding, mathematics, and the like, when they got to the back and they asked these over 170 questions that were necessary for graduating from grammar school, if I were to give this room that test, I would be 
hard-pressed to think that 15 of them could be answered correctly. And because it was a biblically literate society that had survived, that, that, had, that had grown during the first and second great awakening in America, all of our founders were educated and had biblical literacy. And, and even our vernacular, if you've ever heard the writings on the wall, that expression, well, that comes from Daniel with the hand that wrote on the wall. A leopard can't change his spots. All of these are scriptural references from the vernacular that was because of a biblically literate society. And as they came together to put this all in order, we remember the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776, that begins with, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, with certain inalienable, which means you can't put in inalienable, which means you can't put a lien on it, you can't take it away. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. For this purpose, governments were instituted among men for the preservation of those rights. And as they examined that, that inspired the U.S. Constitution that was put together in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention. And this Constitutional Convention between 1776 and then the Battle of Yorktown, 1783, which was the final battle where the British surrendered from 1783 to 1787, they were under the Articles of Confederation and the nation was struggling, trying to figure out what form of government. It wasn't until Shays' Rebellion that 4,000 soldiers rose up and they were all soldiers from the Revolutionary War that had been oppressed by taxes. And when they came back to their farms, not only did the governments not pay them, each of these state governments, but neither did the Continental Congress. And they were not only, in, not only were the governments indebted to them because they didn't pay them for their service in the war, but when they came back, the wealthy on the Eastern seaboard had enacted taxes so high that many of them went into bankruptcy and lost their farms. And they thought, this is not what we fought for. And because of Shays' rebellion, it changed the tide and it brought George Washington out of retirement, the very first person in the history of the world to have won a war and they called for him to be king in 1783. He's the first person to have surrendered power, stepped out and went into retirement. But it wasn't until Shays' rebellion that he realized we have got to put together a form of government that will protect the liberties of mankind. And so in this deliberation, they came up with the U.S. Constitution which is one of the most fascinating. And I remember when I became a city councilman, I put my hand on, uh, not on the Bible because I didn't have it, but I raised my right hand and figuratively in my mind, my other hand was on the Bible. And as I raised my hand, I swore allegiance to protect the U.S. Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic, as well as the California Constitution. And I recall having said that oath of office that I had no idea what the Constitution was. How can I protect and defend something I know nothing about? And thus I began a study Seven Articles of the U.S. Constitution, 27 Amendments. It deals with the legislative, executive, judicial branches. It goes through the terms of office in each. It lays out where the power comes from and how it's assigned. And then the 27 Amendments, the very first one, after they begin with we the people in order to form a more perfect union, realizing the power rests with the people. It's on loan to our representatives. The very first amendment they give is the First Amendment, which is the, the, the freedom to peaceably assemble for right of redress of grievances against the government. Uh, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and the freedom of the press. And what our founders realized is if we're going to protect ourselves from the ambitions of our leaders who want to amass power to themselves so that others would serve them, the very first thing we have to realize is that the pulpits must remain free, as must the press, so that we can protect ourselves from our representatives. But when the press is bought and the pulpits are silent, the country's in trouble. Because we've forgotten. <laughs> we've forgotten. And so today we remember. 
And in 1783, at the Battle of Yorktown, when the British surrendered, and up until 1787, here we have tumult and trial. And this nation is conceived and birthed in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And though currently we represent one-sixth of the world's population in the 4,000-year recorded history of the world, we represent less than 3% of that entire population, yet we're responsible for the greatest achievements mankind has ever known, more patents, more inventions, more symphonies, more Nobel Peace Prize winners than any other nation on the face of the earth. And that's all a result of freedom, liberty. You see, Thomas Jefferson said freedom is having choices. So if you get $100 in your weekly paycheck and you go to a restaurant and everything on the menu is $100 or less, you have the freedom to enjoy anything on that menu. But if the government comes along and takes 25%, you have 25% less choices, thus you have 25% less freedom. If they take 50%, which we're getting very close to, you have 50% less choices, thus you have 50% less freedom. They take it all, you're known as what's called a slave and you're in bondage. You're doing another man's work by the sweat of your brow and you get no remuneration for it. And that's the oppression of humanity, humanity created in the image of God. And we only know this when the gospel is preached, when mankind is awakened to who they are. Because if you go to a mirror and you walk away, you forget who you are. I forgot who I was until I walked into the home of Rear Admiral Robert B. Early. I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I'm an American. And there's a long heritage that I have to remember. Because these men and women who fought, bled, and died protected this gift that I have to rightly divide the word of truth without someone taking that away. And here we are today. Those rights are being infringed and taken. And they're inalienable. No one's allowed to take them. We're willingly giving them to them because we don't know and we don't care. And we're more concerned with our general welfare right now than we are for generations to come. And the folks that you're going to see momentarily on the screen, many of them never had the privilege to raise families. They died. They died so that you could, so that you could raise families and enjoy these freedoms that they fought for. And we take them for granted and we forget them. And we walk away from that mirror and we forget. And forgetting is the absolute opposite of remembering. And it's fitting today that we stop and we remember. The scripture says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's a very profound statement from the scriptures as all of scripture is profound. But the realization that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. If I were to ask, what is the definition of liberty? We would get a cacophony of, of definitions. I don't know that anyone really knows what liberty is. Although in America, the best that we can muster is that at a football game or a baseball game, home of the land of the free, home of the brave, we cheer. But we have no idea what freedom is and what liberty is. And if we don't know what it is, how do we defend it? How do we protect it? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch, he says, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong. It's an exhortation to all believers. Paul, who wrote again in the prison in Galatia to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We're allowing ourselves to be placed in bondage because we're unwilling to stand for liberty. You see, as I said earlier, freedom is having choices. Liberty is doing what's right. The Apostle Paul could do what was right in that Galatian prison because he had died a long time ago and was not fearful of his life. He would write in the book of Acts, none of these things move me. 
I don't count my life dear to myself. I died a long time ago. He wrote, I, the apostle Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. He knew that he was in a prison because he had sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that had placed him in prison. And you can look and say, Paul didn't have freedom. Oh, yes, he did. You see, Paul willingly chose to place himself in prison so that he could declare liberty. And he was the freest man in the entirety of the world. And they would change guards every three to six hours, and he'd be, he'd be chained between two Roman guards, and he would witness to both of them, lead them both to Christ. They would switch, he'd get fresh meat, and he'd share it with the other two. And many believe that the church in Rome was established by the centurion who, who, who Jesus healed his servant, and many other Roman soldiers who witnessed the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and the countless Roman soldiers who were witnessed to by the Apostle Paul in prison after prison, because that's where he spent the lion's share of his time, so that when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he was writing it to a group of folks that never had an apostle visit them. The church was founded by these Roman soldiers whose lives had been so profoundly touched by this diminutive. Jew who had preached the gospel to them in absolute fearlessness. He had no fear because he would write to Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And Paul was the freest man who ever lived as he was chained because he had willingly subjected himself to being chained so that he could profess liberty and set the captives free. Where are those men and women today who realize how precious liberty is? You know, I was sitting with our city manager and one of my comments to him was, I am not concerned with the welfare of the people currently. And I know that sounds strange. I do my bidding and I will care for you as a city councilman, but the actions I take are for generations to come. Our job is to plant trees of whose shade we will never see. And these are oaks of righteousness that will be established in our community for our grandchildren. A righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. If you're living for the now and not doing what's right for the sake of personal gain and personal comfort and rejecting the future, if you're borrowing and leveraging the future and giving the children debt, that is not what Christ called us to. Have no debt but to love. A borrower is a slave to the lender, and yet we we level this on our children and allow them to do that because we're unwilling to stand for liberty and freedom. And here we are at a crossroads in a nation where we're struggling and we're overwhelmed And we wonder if there's any hope. And yet, as I started to take a look, I I had the privilege to see the recollections of my wife's grandfathers. I read stories about him on the internet. And then I actually got to hear my godfather's voice as they have a living narrative as they interviewed him about what he had experienced at Pearl Harbor. I read clips from others and I put together and assembled this so that you can understand what these people did. I want to begin with the first picture, and this is a 105-year-old Lemuel Cook, the last living survivor veteran of the Revolutionary War. At 105 years of age, he was born in Northbury, Connecticut in 1761 on September 10th. He died May 20th, 1866. He served at the Battle of Brandywine and later Yorktown. He witnessed the surrender of General Cornwallis to General Washington. And the reason why we have his photo and many others is because there was a pastor, a minister, who realized that these men were dying and he took it upon himself to travel the country and find every living Revolutionary War veteran with this new technology of the camera and began to to take pictures of each of them and record their stories. 
because he realized that liberty had to be remembered and he wanted to instill it in his congregation. In his observations of Lemuel Cook, he wrote, Cook agreed and served at the Battle of Brandywine and was witnessed, uh, witnessed Cornwallis's surrender that ended the war. Uh, he said that, that um, Lemuel Cook remembered Washington ordered that there should be no laughing at the British during the surrender. He said it was bad enough to have to surrender without being insulted. And Cook never forgot the general's orders. The pastor writes, today Cook still walks comfortably with the help of a cane and with the aid of glasses, he reads his book as he calls the Bible. And what this pastor realized is each of these Revolutionary War heroes, these Revolutionary War survivors, all had a love for God. It was a nation that was inundated with the scriptures and understood the true concept of liberty and fought for it. Next, we go to the Civil War and there's Joshua Chamberlain one of the most highly decorated veterans of the Civil War, Medal of Honor recipient. He was at the Battle of Little uh, uh, Little Bighorn at Little Round Top. And this was the Battle of Gettysburg where the, the, the Confederate forces were attacking the left flank of the Union lines on Little Round Top. Chamberlain was completely out of ammunition. If that didn't hold, they would take the high ground and the, the, war, or the battle would turn in the favor of the Confederates. And with a bayonet advance on a, on a swinging um, maneuver that he had invented, he annihilated the Confederates and held Little Round Top. And thus, the very first time the Confederate forces entered the North, they were repelled. And we have the Battle of Gettysburg that Chamberlain was known for. He was severely wounded, went on to be wounded multiple times and actually left for dead, but survived and went on to become the president of Bowdoin College, uh, rose to the rank of general, uh, was governor of, of Maine, and he was a man that loved the Lord, spoke nine languages, could speak Greek, Latin, and Hebrew fluently because he needed those languages to study the scriptures. An amazing man. Then we go to World War I, and here you have Alvin York. Alvin York uh, was a pacifist. You guys saw Hacksaw Ridge? Alvin York was the same way. He was a pacifist. And he, he had petitioned not to have to serve for religious conscience, but they said no, unlike they did with the guy at Hacksaw Ridge. And instead of being put in stockades, he, he went and fought. He and around 17 other Americans had just captured troops from a German regiment when they found themselves under heavy fire from enemy machine guns. Nine of the Americans were quickly wounded or killed, but York, a crack shot from his days as a turkey hunter, escaped unscathed and began picking off the German gunners with his rifle. When six of the enemy tried to charge York with bayonets, he drew his 45 pistol and shot them all. He had soon forced the remaining Germans to surrender and later claimed even more prisoners on his way back to the American lines, all told... York and the eight remaining soldiers in his command captured 132 German soldiers. Alvin York loved the Lord. He knew why he was fighting. Go to the next one. This is Butch O'Hare. He was a class of 1937 from the United States Naval Academy. He was classmates with my godfather and also my wife's grandfather, who were both class of 37. Uh, Admiral Early and, and Admiral Fowler were, were best of friends, as were their wives through their lives. And that class of 37 had two Medal of Honor recipients. Butch O'Hare was one of them. My godfather knew Butch O'Hare. Butch O'Hare um, 
repelled a Japanese attack of, I think it was eight Japanese bombers that were going to attack his carrier. And he single-handedly shot down five of them and incapacitated two others and repelled the attack single-handedly was the first USAs, meaning shot down five enemy airplanes. And he came back badly battered up, ended up dying later in the war, but received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions. You guys have ever heard of O'Hare Airport? Chicago O'Hare? There you go. Fascinatingly enough, um, he was from that area. That's where my wife's grandfather died in Glenview, Illinois, in a fire as he was serving this nation. And thus, as I said earlier, he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, as is Butch O'Hare and countless others. My godfather is buried on the grounds of the United States Naval Academy. Uh, We go to Vietnam. Jack Hansen, excuse me, Korea, Jack Hansen. There's there's no picture that we can find of him, but Jack Hansen, an interesting fellow, um, a PFC, a private, he was a machine gunner with the 1st Platoon Company F. He distinguished himself in gallantry, and, and he, he staved off the enemy so his, his company could retreat, and he held his post. When they found his body, he had a bloody hatchet in his hand and an empty forty-five, and there were over 30 enemy combatants surrounding him. And he had saved the life of his company as a result of his actions. Growing up, as I said earlier, I had the privilege to see many amazing veterans. One in particular, as I've shared often with you, is Captain James Stark, who was held in the Hanoi Hilton. He had a scar on his back where he was hung by a meat hook. His left arm was fused as he ejected out of his A6, and he couldn't bend it. I remember he'd run on the beach like this. He was always just, I and the reason why I saw his scar is because he was always ahead of me. He was an Adonis of of a man, stunning. Still living today, Captain James Stark. One of the folks that he was acquainted with and was friends with throughout his life, and actually my parents on December 27th, which was their anniversary and my sister's birthday, they would host a party every year in Coronado. It was the big party, and everyone would come to our house. My parents would lavish on on all of their friends, and it was the the party in, in, in the town. And I remember as a young boy seeing Admiral James Stockdale, who was friends with Captain James Stark. Admiral James Stockdale, I think it was his left leg that had been fused, and he walked with a gait because his, his leg was fused. And we'd have to put him to sit in a location where his leg being out wouldn't trip any of the guests. And Admiral Stockdale came down with Alzheimer's, and he would wander the streets of Coronado, and everybody knew where he belonged, and they'd take him home to Sybil. And he, he finished his years there. You remember him in the vice presidential debates as he was the vice presidential candidate along with Ross Perot. And everyone laughed because it seemed as though he was a deer caught in headlights and he was listening to these other two contend. And, and he often, at one time, even said, why am I here? And people mocked him and ridiculed him. But what they didn't realize is he couldn't hear the questions because his, his deafness as, as a result of having beaten, beaten so profusely in the Hanoi Hilton, he, he had served in the Hanoi Hilton longer than anyone else. And as the highest ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton, he was beaten and beaten and beaten. And this man stood his ground. He was never a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton in his estimation. He was stationed at the Hanoi Hilton. And he commanded all the soldiers under his command and kept them alive and stood his ground. Though Though he died of Alzheimer's, He was bigger than life. 
He was a man who understood the value of Western civilization and liberty and lived to defend it. I, uh, I want to show you this next picture because I think we don't get it. You see, all of you are desperate. And in this last election, whoever you voted for, somewhere along the line, you thought your hope was going to come from the federal level. You thought that the, that the Messiah would come on Air Force One. That if we get the right president, the right judicial appointments, and, and we can turn this nation. And as you know, there, as a pastor, I am deeply engaged in the political process, and I, I, I work tirelessly for those principles. But America's got it all wrong. You see, the higher up the government, the less freedom you have. The more you push government down to the local level, the greater the freedom you have. At the federal level, you'd be hard-pressed to get an audience with a Congress member or a senator. You'd be very hard-pressed to let them know your concerns. When I said I was going to Washington and I had the chance to meet Sean Spicer, a number of folks came up and said, would you give this to uh, Press Secretary Spicer? And if you see the president, will you give this to him? And I can tell you exactly what they do when they receive. They go, oh, thank you. Funk. Because you're not the only one. And the higher up you go, the more people are trying to get to you because they see power centralized. And the greater the government, the smaller the citizen. And at the federal level, it is, it, it, we're hoping that there's going to be some sort of change at the federal level. And, and we're lamenting and we're frightened and we're scared and we're watching taxes increase and we're watching at the state level gas taxes increase. And the chance of connecting with a state representative, your assembly member, or your state senator, though we might have a little bit better chance, they're still very busy and the likelihood is you're not going to be able to move them. And we watch as these, these two levels of government are oppressing the people unbelievably. And in California, the tax rate is so high, we're watching as we work harder and get less. And it's hard to survive here. And then we come to the county level, and, and, and though we have a county supervisor who attends our fellowship, and you can talk to him, he's busier than a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. <laughs> I meant a one-armed man in wallpaper hanger thing. I've, I don't know how that got out. And, 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 and to try to get an audience with your county supervisor, though you can do it, the chance of affecting him is, is somewhat minimal. And the responsibilities that they're leveled with, it's a full-time job. You come to the local level, and as we go further down here, you have a pastor who's a city councilman, and many of you interacted and you've asked for things to be done, and I can get them done because at the local level, the greater the freedom. But let's go further with government beyond just local city council. How about the government of the church? We have pastors and elders, and the, the church is operated by structure. Let's go down to the family. The family have a, a, a husband and a wife and children. And even in a family, you have, the, you have the three branches of government. You have the legislative, which is, I, I, in our family, it's my wife. She legislates. I'm the executive branch. I execute. My children are the judicial branch. That's not fair. And they have access to each levels of that, and we keep each other in a check and balance system, and we work through it to the best of our ability. But let's go further. And that's where you get to me, tiny little me. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you. You say me. That's you. Say me again. That's you. Little tiny you. Little, little tiny you right there. And you're walking around going, oh, I can't handle this. I got to go to work to feed the bureaucracy. And you're getting crushed underneath it, aren't you? 
But what is the, local, the greatest form of local government that we have that gives us the greatest amount of freedom? The Bible says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Who is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. You'll know the truth, Jesus, and the truth will set you free. The greatest form of local government that gives you the greatest form of freedom and liberty is you and Jesus. You have a relationship with the living God and no weapon fashioned against you will stand. The Bible says you're more than conquerors, but we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that. A memorial is to remember, and we have forgotten. A memorial is to remember, and we've forgotten. You see, Jesus' brother, James, he wrote in James chapter 1, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness, which means you're governed by God. Meek is a bit in a horse's mouth that controls this great beast by a simple piece of metal. God's word directs us. This beast is directed by the word of God, meekness. And you receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You sit here and you hear it, but if you don't do it, if you're not faithful to your commanding officer to do what he commands you to do, there's no order and no structure. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. You see, this perfect law of liberty, we look into the mirror, which is God's word, and we see who we are in the light of God's word, and he wants to correct us, he wants to exhort us, he wants to change us, he wants to challenge us. In our relationship, this freedom, as he speaks to us, and we yield ourselves in submission to him, which is true freedom because then we have this relationship as we were always intended. God created us in his image to have a relationship with us that's reestablished. And if we look into the perfect law of liberty, which is his word, and we walk away and we don't do what he commands us to do, we forget who we are. And we think we can come up with some sort of a solution apart from his word. And all that comes is bondage. And when we walk away from the mirror, we forget. When we walk away from the mirror, we forget. Forgetting is the reverse of remembering. And that's why I picked the passage this morning out of Acts chapter 17. Because in Acts 17, when the entire civil government was in an uproar and, and dis disheveled and, and, and tumult was, was rising rampantly, because of the simple preaching of the word of God that you will know the truth, the truth will set you free, professing and contending for the truth in the public square, the governor and all those affiliated with Caesar were looking and saying, this has got to stop. And this has been the call in 4,000 years of recorded history of mankind that the number one form of government in the history of the world has been a monarchy. The divine right of kings. You will labor and sweat for my benefit. I will suppress you. I will tell you what you can wear. I will take away your choices. I will take away your freedom. I will tell you where you can live, what job you can do, and how much you must pay me. And if I don't like it, I will kill you. And it's the contention of man to centralize that power to suppress the masses. And along comes the gospel that sets man free. 
And this cry in the human heart of liberty, this cry in the human heart of freedom is being realized in the city of Thessalonica. And those that hold this authority of divine right of kings that they believe is instilled in scripture. And we even watched in Western civilization as monarchies would misuse the scripture and keep all of its citizens illiterate so that they wouldn't know the truth and deliberately steer them from the truth. And they would misuse scripture to justify their position by saying David was a king, Saul was a king, Solomon was a king. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. We have been placed here by God and you're to serve us and we are the elite. And this Geneva Bible that was established with the pilgrims in 1621 when they came over, it was not unlike any other Bible. It had the scriptures, just like the King James has the scriptures, but in the margin of the Geneva Bible, which was the Pilgrim's Bible, in the margin were all the commentaries of the reformers. You see, the church had been established and the church had the sword and they did awful things like the Inquisition. And these men and women of God started to realize that the church is not supposed to be the government. Man is to establish government inspired by the church. And so as they looked at ecclesiastical government and civil government and they put these things together, they started to realize that selling indulgences and all the violations of the church had to be stopped. And so the Protestant Reformation occurred. And these reformers began to pour through the scriptures and study them. And and as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, studying to show themselves approved unto God workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. They started to make commentaries and started to look at all of society through the lens of scripture. And how does this truth set men free? And those created in the image of God, how do we give mankind this freedom and still understand his ambitions? And so when the pilgrims came over with this Geneva Bible, with a commentary of the reformers, they started to take a look at civil government. It was a great offense to kings because they didn't want anyone vying for their power. And for those of you who are King James only scriptures, let me tell you this, the King James version of the Bible came about as uh, to try to stop the Geneva Bible. The king had authorized the printing of these scriptures and they were exactly the same as the Geneva Bible scriptures. Only the commentaries were forbidden and only a king could... um, could guarantee or only a king could authorize the printing of a Bible in English territory within the British empire. And so the Geneva Bible was outlawed. But as these pilgrims started to look through civil government, through the eyes of the scripture and the commentaries, the first thing they saw in the book of Acts was they sold all their possessions and they laid them at the apostles feet and they gave to those who had need. And so based on that scripture, they started to apply in the Massachusetts colony, uh, an early form of socialism. And they started to realize it doesn't work because one of the lazy guys would get the same as the guy who worked hard. And the guy who worked hard is going, I ain't working to supply that. And so the society started to break down. They went back to the scriptures and they saw in Timothy and they saw in Thessalonians that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And they started to apply these truths. They came up with fascinating scriptures as as we saw in Exodus 18, 21, that from 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel says, God, they want a king. They don't, they've rejected me. And they go, and God says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And tell them what's going to happen when they get a king. The king's going to own all the land. He's going to tell their sons where to go. He's going to have his daughters as concubines. Tell them they don't want a king. And they rejected, they cried for king. God gave him a king. Be careful what you ask for. God may give it. And as all this started to affect them adversely, it was finally the reformers as they came over and they looked at it and they said, where is government located? And they went back to Exodus 18, long before 1 Samuel 8. And they saw in Exodus 18, 21, a very profound passage that simply says, moreover, you shall select from the people, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, placing them over rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. So you had local, county, state, and federal government. 
And these are the people you look to put him in office. When they started to realize the ambition of man and the sinful nature of man, that he wants to centralize power to himself, they established branches of government to protect the, the other two would protect them from the third. And then if that one got out of control, these two would protect it from that one. And so they had the executive, legislative, judicial branch. You go, where'd that come from? Isaiah thirty three twenty two. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. Then the Lord is our king. Judge, that's judicial. Lawgiver, that's legislative. King, executive branch. And they started to formulate this government based on the understandings of scripture. And we experienced the greatest freedom in the history of the world. And then when the constitutional convention came about and the constitutional republic that we've been given, it's one of the most fascinating gifts the world has ever seen, as I've said earlier. But now we're at a place where we're losing all these freedoms. We've forgotten. We've forgotten what the scriptures say and we're biblically illiterate and now we're in trouble. And we look at this and we think, what is our hope? Because all of this is on top of us. But what's so fascinating is that when Paul went into Thessalonica in Acts 17 and he preached this gospel and he turned this city into a tumult, the scripture says, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying out. And I had you repeat this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They turned the world upside down. Let's go to the next slide. Let's turn it upside down. Now that's government. You see, federal, state, county, and local are all downstream. You want revival? You want to change the world? It begins with your relationship with God. Push the government down to its local level, and that's the freest you will be. And when you, like the Apostle Paul, can be in a prison in Galatia, standing fast, therefore, for the liberty for which Christ has set you free, no longer giving yourselves to the yoke of bondage and standing there in chains, chained between two guards, realizing that you are not imprisoned, but this is your command. And you willingly have submitted to Christ because he is your authority. The apostle Paul would write in the book of Acts, none of these things move me. I don't count my life dear to myself. I died a long time ago. And he wrote, I, the apostle Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. I died a long time ago. God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I am not in prison. I am stationed here by my commanding officer, and I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. It's all perspective. You want freedom, you can have it right now. Or you can whine and lament and think that it's going to come from the federal, state, county, or local level. But you just turn that pyramid upside down and that's what it looks like. But you want freedom? Establish it with the Lord. Remember who you are. You've been created in the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb. God has every hair on your head numbered. Before you were born, he knew you. He thought of you in eternity and he placed you in time. A time such as this, to stand and to remember and to be inspired. And he gives you a list of those who've gone before you who have fought, bled, and died so that you can have the freedom that you have right now as you open these scriptures without any fear or trepidation. Nobody's taken our rights from us. We've given them away. One man and God constitutes a majority. You contend in the schools for your children. You contend in the local civic arena for your children. You contend. And you don't do it for temporal pleasures. You do it for generations to come. You're planting trees, oaks of righteousness, whose shade you will never witness. You see, this is what God's called us to. We don't have to be afraid anymore. This is what government looks like. 
You go to that mirror, which is the perfect law of liberty, and you say to God, what do you want me to do today? And you stand. Just like my Godfather who said, quit whining. I am so tired of the whining church in America. You don't know tough. And I'm not speaking just to you, I'm speaking to me. You don't know tough. Our nation has had times far more concerning than they are now. And the minute we get back to realizing how government works, the better off we're all gonna be. You receive it and then you fight for it. You receive it and then you fight for it. You receive it and you fight for it. And apathy won't win the day. And lethargy won't win the day. And like me taking the oath of office, how can you defend something you know nothing about? Our founders read the scriptures. Is the only time you crack your Bible when you come to church on Sunday? It should saturate the lives of your children. Young people, you should be reading it. You want a future? Open your Bible. You want to be inspired? Open your Bible. And don't just read it and walk away from it and forget who you are. Read it and know who you are. See yourself in the pages of the scripture, God speaking to you, commanding you, exhorting you, empowering you, inspiring you. Be moved, make a difference. This is the call. I want to close with two videos. One is, well, you'll see them both. This is a man who received the Congressional Medal of Honor in Vietnam. It was awarded to him by then-President Ronald Reagan. Take a look. Let's lower the light. I wanted money in my pocket, I wanted good clothes, I wanted to have a car. And I learned early in life that why dig a ditch when you can supervise the digging. So I joined the Texas National Guard. Raul Roy Benavidez began a long and illustrious military career in the Texas Army National Guard during the Korean War. By 1965, Benavidez had joined the Army's 82nd Airborne Division and was on his way to South Vietnam to act as an advisor to an Arvin Infantry Regiment. I stepped on a landmine my first trip to Vietnam. I woke up at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. I was declared never to walk again. I was paralyzed from the waist down. So I used to slip out of bed at night and I crawled to a wall and I sat against the wall and I backed myself up against the wall and stand there trying to move my toes right and left, right and left. And I begged God to please help me. Seven months later, I walked out of that hospital. I walked out with a limp, but I walked out. 
I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I made three parachute jumps in one day, and I was ready, physically and mentally fit, to go back to Vietnam. In April of 68, I was inserted deep behind lines with another friend of mine to gather intelligence information of the enemy. My buddy in the second day got shot through the eye, the face, and the back, and I didn't want to leave him behind. So I called in for an extraction helicopter to come in and get us out. They come in with what we call a McGuire rig, with nothing but a piece of rope that picks you up from danger to safety. In this case, there were two pieces of rope. And we have what we call a belly man. In this case, it was Leroy Wright. Sergeant Wright and I had been together for years. He couldn't look out that helicopter as we were coming out of the canopy of the jungle. Our ropes had twisted. You know what nylon rope does when it rubs? It burns. And Sergeant Wright, a black non-commissioned officer, he looked out and he saw that two ropes were twisted and they were burning. He tied himself with what we call a belly band and he pulled himself out of the helicopter. He worked himself down those two ropes and he untangled those two ropes. That love of fellow man, dedication. And when I found out that Leroy Wright's team was trapped, I volunteered to go in and to get him out. On May 2nd, 1968, Benavidez was at a forward operating base in Lak Ninh when word arrived of a 12-man intelligence gathering team that had been pinned down by superior NVA forces. Three helicopters had already attempted to extract them, but were unable to land due to intense enemy fire. Racing to board a fourth rescue helicopter and realizing that all of the team's members were either wounded or dead, Benavidez directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing and leapt from the hovering vehicle to assist. Armed only with a knife and his medical bag, Benavidez ran approximately 75 meters under withering enemy fire and was hit several times in the attempt. Despite his own injuries, Benavidez administered aid to wounded team members and carried or dragged the others to the safety of the extraction helicopter. He also made certain to recover the fallen sergeant's body and secure the classified documents he was carrying. But while making his way back, the helicopter pilot was hit and the aircraft crashed. Now critically injured, Benavidez fought his way back to the wreckage, where he struggled desperately to free the wounded, form a defensive perimeter, and direct airstrikes to allow another rescue landing to be attempted. But it would be hours from the start of the action before that help would arrive. I spent six hours Pardon the expression, God, in hell. I got shot five times. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. I was bayoneted on both arms. Helicopters after helicopters came in to get us out. The last helicopter that came to get us out, these officers, dedicated men like you, men and women, these officers, four of them volunteered to come and get us out. Our life was in their hands. This dedication that we had with one another. When they pulled me out, they said that I was holding my intestines in my hand. I don't remember. I was so scared, so tired. 
that they let me lay on the floor of that chopper and blood was flowing all around us. When we pulled up, blood was flowing out like an open socket. When we landed and they started identifying the bodies, they found out that I loaded three dead enemy soldiers by mistake. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. And so they let me lay next to the enemy soldier, NVA, and they were putting them in body bags. And I couldn't talk. They were already put me in the body bag, and the zipper was coming up, and I couldn't tell this guy, hey, I'm still alive, man. I'm still alive. And my buddy, Jerry Cottenham, he went and got a doctor, grabbed him, and he made that doctor feel my heartbeat. When I felt that doctor's hand on my chest, I spit in his face. That's the only sign that I had, the only strength that I had to let him know that I was still alive. Where did we find such men? We find them where we've always found them. In our villages and towns, on our city streets, in our shops and on our farms. I have one more Vietnam story, and the individual in this story was brought up on a farm outside of Carreo in DeWitt County, Texas, and he is here today. I learned of his story, which had been overlooked or buried for several years. It has to do with the highest award our nation can give, the Congressional Medal of Honor given only for service above and beyond the call of duty. It took 13 years for me to be recognized. But during those 13 years, I worked hand in hand with the Air Force, the Marines, the SEALs. I was an advisor to the Reserve Units, the National Guard. And my greatest accomplishment was to see that the officers and the non-commissioned officers work together. Wherever you're at, in civilian clothes or in uniform, we work together. We never let each other down. There was one question that I know you wanted to ask, but you didn't ask, and I'm gonna answer it for you. Would you do it over again? I see some heads nodding on it. I'll answer you in this manner. There'll never be enough paper to print the money, nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep me from doing what I did. We should never look at color of skin. The only color we should look at, right there, red, white, and blue. We're all Americans. I'm proud to be an American and even prouder that I earned the privilege to wear the green beret. I live by the motto. For the sake of time, I'm gonna not have the worship team come up. I'm gonna close the morning with one more video. And at the conclusion of it, I'm I'd like to tell you the story behind the package. Hello. Let's uh, let's do something about that. <laughs> I'm going to show you one more video, and then at the conclusion of the video, I want you to leave respectfully, at your leisure. Um. In this Memorial Day, don't forget. Don't forget what you've been called to and who you are. Who we are and what gift we've been given and what we're called to do. 
These folks forsook their future so you could have one. It's time we live for the future of the younger ones as well. You young folks, you'll be inspired and empowered. I'm old. I'm inspired, but I don't have the strength. You can be inspired and have the strength and be twice the man as me. So do it. Watch this. Let the Lord minister to you. When you go out, yeah, enjoy the tri-tip. But don't forget, may God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.